Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we spoke about this already, that justification is ours through Jesus Christ. It can be explained in a number of different ways. But from God's view, maybe the simplest way to explain this idea of justification by faith is to use an adage that you've heard before, a wonderful adage. As we understand justification by faith, there is a, in a sense in which now we can come into God's presence ourselves, and we can stand before him without living in fear, without cowering, and we can stand before him with our heads up. But the reason is because of how God looks at us in that moment, because we've been justified or made right through our faith in Jesus Christ. And the adage is that God looks at us just as if we'd never sinned. He looks at us clothed and dressed in the perfect righteousness of his son. He looks at us with the same pleasure that he looked upon his son. When the Lord Jesus, you might remember, was baptized, we read this in Matthew and Mark and Luke and those three Gospels, that at the time of his baptism that the Lord spoke out over the waters in which he was baptized, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And God was declaring his pleasure over the Lord Jesus Christ. That pleasure that he had in his son abided upon the son and was expressed and that favor was upon his son all throughout his earthly journey. And then towards the end of that journey, the Lord Jesus describes to his disciples or announces to his disciples that he's going up to Jerusalem and there he's going to be beaten by the chief priests and by the the scribes and the Pharisees and the Romans and there he's going to be crucified. And you remember that Peter said, Lord, may it never be. And the Lord Jesus rebuked Peter at his statement. It was right after that, just before he begins to make his way up to Jerusalem for the sacrifice, that the Bible tells us that he took Peter, James, and John, and they went up onto a high mountain. When they got up onto that high mountain, that the Lord Jesus was transfigured before their eyes, so that his body, in a sense, metamorphized before them, and his face began to shine like the sun, and his clothes began to radiate like a radiating light that clothed them in light. And in that moment, as they were witnessing this, a Moses and then Elijah came alongside of the Lord Jesus. Moses, representing the law that God had communicated to the people of Israel and gave as a divine revelation to us. Elijah, representing the prophets by which God spoke to the nation of Israel. Two of the greatest figures in all of Israelite history the great heroes of their faith, these two men standing alongside the Lord Jesus and Peter, not knowing what to say, speaking for the other two, said, Lord, if it's good, it's good, this is good that this is happening. If you give us permission, let us build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now those tabernacles are probably like the booze that would be temporarily built during the time of celebration for the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's build something for that, for the three of you. Let's give you all equal honor. God speaks at that moment out of the cloud. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear you him. His life extends out beyond in greatness that of Moses, beyond in wonder and pleasure that I had in Elijah. He is the one I'm well pleased in. This is Christ and this is his life and this is the father's attitude towards his son. 
when we're justified by faith, this is his attitude towards us. We live under the view of his good pleasure, under the view of his favor. The Bible says, as many as received his son, Jesus Christ, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. And that's what we are. And as such, God looks upon us with that same kind of pleasure. Now, out of that justifying faith, Paul tells us of three experiences that come to us, three things that settle into our existence and our life as those who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. We spoke about the first one last week, and that is that we gain a sense or an awareness of peace with God. This is how God addresses our past. The accumulation of all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our antagonism towards God. A past in which we were, the Bible says, enemies of God and under His own condemnation and wrath, that past is turned away and in a moment of faith in Jesus Christ, we come to an end of all hostility. And suddenly we are at peace with God. We have peace with Him through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith places us in a position in which the favor that God has upon His own Son now rests upon us. Never been in the warfare, never been in the midst of battle, never been in a place where the cannon fire is sounding out around you and where the shells are bursting around you. I don't know what it's like when the moment when all of a sudden peace comes and the fire ceases and the ceasefire takes place, and everything has been settled, and you can come out of your foxhole and go into the world and reclaim it for yourself. But that's what happened when I put my faith in Jesus Christ. All of that hostility ceased, and in a moment God invited me into the world in which I lived in antagonism and against Him. And I began to live for the things that He was bringing and He was making, and that's how God dealt with my past. We spoke about that last week. Now, let's look at two other things that take place this week. The next thing it says in our passage is that we enter into a state of grace in which we stand or in which we are fixed. And this is where God puts us in the present. For my past, God brings me into peace with God. For my present now, in this state in which I live in this present day and age, I am living in a standing or a fixed state of grace. Now, before this, when Paul speaks of the idea of grace, Paul uses the word grace He's speaking of it as the free way in which God brings to us or offers us salvation. How it's something that's free, that's given to us. We don't work for it, we don't labor for it. It's just this free gift of salvation, it's grace. But now he gives us a different turn or a different perspective or a different application of this word grace. Now he's not talking about the free way in which God offers us salvation, but here he's speaking of grace as the abiding state that we enter into in which now we enjoy all the benefits of that salvation. Everything that is ours now to experience and enjoy and that we are to receive from God's outpoured benefits and blessing, this now is a standing or state of grace. It's free too. But it comes to us through this free salvation. We see here, by the way, that it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, and through whom also we have access. So in all these things that we're going to be talking about this morning, just remember that it all is anchored in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through him and in him and by him that we experience these things. And it's through him and in him and by him that we now live in this state of grace. Now, let's look at this word access for a second. Through him also we have received or we have access. The word there in Greek is uh, prosagoge. 
And it can mean one of two things. It can mean access, but it also can mean introduction. So if you have a New American Standard Bible, it will put it this way. Through whom, speaking of the Lord Jesus, we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace. And so, in this idea, the focus is upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea that He has taken us and brought us and given us an introduction or, or an audience with God who then bestows upon us these graces. Reading an old English preacher, he tells the story to illustrate this of a little beggar boy who is standing outside the fence at Buckingham Palace and he's begging the guards to let him go in and speak to the king because he has a special need and a special favor that he's asking and of course they ignore him but the little boy just keeps pestering him and begging him and at some point in time he's warned and asked to be quiet and silent but they're not responding to any of his requests and he begins to weep and he's washing his face with his tears this grubby little beggar boy when all of a sudden a hand comes down and takes hold of his hand and the man who grabs hold of him says come with me lad and I'll take you into the palace and so the man leads him before the guards and when they come before the guards the guards snap to attention and clear the way for the man and the boy to enter into the palace for the man is the Prince of Wales he's the son of the king and he leads the little beggar boy into the palace Buckingham Palace to meet the king and make his request to the king. That's the illustration. He's received an introduction by way of the son of the king, the prince of Wales. And in the same way, we're told that we could take the passage that way. That our Lord Jesus Christ has introduced us. He's granted us this entrance. The God the Father. I think that's true. I think that's what he's done for us. However, I don't think that's what the word prosagoge means here in this passage. Most of the translations say we have been granted access or we have gained access. And I think that's the right, that's the right translation. The emphasis here is not on just the entryway in which we've come to him or the means in which we've come to him, but it's what's before us, what we've gained access to. And what it describes is a life that we've gained access to and all can say is it's all grace. It's all this free, outward benefit that has been given to us through Jesus Christ. We not only receive peace with God, but we have a new position now as His sons and daughters. Grace, in this sense, is unmerited favor. And here, having been justified by faith, we stand favored by God. Favored by God. You go to a little playground and there's a bunch of kids playing on the playground. Your eyes, and this happens sometimes, your eyes are caught up by one child that's just particularly glowing and beautiful and they've got maybe just the, the cutest little clothes on and they've got just the most cherubic little face. They have just the prettiest little hair with little bows and they've got just perfect little skin and you hardly notice another little kid that's running around and he's got hair that's going all over the place and it's patchy and his eyes are close together and he's got freckles all over his face and he's just you know he's got a face that only a mother could love and he's playing on the playground as well yet what you don't know is that on a bench next to you is a person who has their eyes just on that little boy just can't take their eyes off that little boy as he's playing on that playground it's his mother and she loves that face and she loves that boy and she has all of her favor all of her favor 
as opposed to the appearance of all the other little children. All the delights they're experiencing all focus in and are all drawn upon the delight she takes in that one child. And that's how it is for us. That's how it is for us. God looks at us now. He receives us. We live in a state in which, through Jesus Christ, we have his favor. He's favoring us. It's, it's a favor that opens up to us benefits too numerous for us to count. This statement, into this grace, or access into this grace, or this grace in which we stand, this grace... This grace, think about it, this grace, what does that mean? It's too deep a pool of blessing to begin to explain or explore. It's, it's grace so manifold, so multiple, so all-encompassing that you can't, you couldn't, you wouldn't think that you could name it all. There's a wonderful day for us today. It's a day in which we're thinking about, hopefully, some of the blessings that God has poured out upon us in this country. And Someone might come to you and ask you, why do you love America? I've been asked that question before. Traveling overseas, people will ask you, what do you like about living in America or being an American? And I don't know how to answer that question. The answer is so multiple. There's so many things. There's so many blessings. It stirs up all kinds of benefits that I've received in my life in this place. It's the earth and it's the land and it's the privileges. Go on, it's the history and on and on. And I can't name them all. Someone might say to you, why do you love your wife? If you can give an answer to that question in one sentence, there's something wrong. Well, you know, she makes the best tacos. My wife makes, I love my wife because she, what? You can't name it. You couldn't put your finger on it. You couldn't describe why you loved your, if you can, if you can narrow it down to a few things, something's wrong. You don't know all that God has given you in that person and all that can Echo forth in your life and loving them, you point to all kinds of things. The way that chair is sitting in the house right there, and there's the way she put that picture there, and it's the way she hums to herself, and it's the way she sighs, and it's on and on and on and on. Oh, how do you look at this phrase? Access into this grace, this grace, and understand what it means, and appreciate it. I'm not going to even try to, but suggest a few things at least. Let's suggest a few things. There's the grace of claiming the blesser in all of life as our own. The grace of claiming the blesser in all of life as our own. There are graces that come to us, unbounding graces that come to us through when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. Forgiveness of sins, a stature, a presence in the presence of God in heaven, a mediator who always mediates for us a God who pours out His Spirit upon us. There are all these blessings, but prior to that, we all were, along with everyone else in this world, recipients of what's called common grace. All the blessings that creation and all the joys that creation provides for us, all the pleasures of our natures that can be satisfied with taste and sights and feelings of importance and significance and love and accomplishment, all these graces which all people, Christian and non-Christians alike enjoy, but once you give your life to Jesus Christ, the change is that now you know that these things that you're enjoying are flowing from out of the riches of your own home and your own house and your own father's house, the place that you reside and the place that you belong to. A little boy can be playing and a mother can come out and bring to the little son with his friends a plate of cookies. And all those kids get to enjoy that treat. They all eat of the treat. But one little boy knows, yeah, my mom made those cookies. Those are my mom's cookies. It means something, something wonderful. 
So think about it. Just the common blessings that you experience in life that everyone else experiences as well. And know now, oh, but now they have upon them the signature and the expression of, uh, of the God who is my Father, my Savior. It pours out from the storehouse of the home that He is in store for me, where I live and I dwell and I have a place. That's a grace that's incredible and unimaginable. There's also the grace of God's influences pressing upon our lives. The minute a person comes to Jesus Christ and receives Him as their Savior, there is an experience at that moment of God's presence. God being present with them. And do you know, prior to that, God is this person, there was antagonism and there was fear and there was trepidation. And in that moment, there's a sense of love and belonging and care and providence and embrace and acceptance. God lays upon us the sense and awareness of His own presence. And the Bible says that there's joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. That's because all of the angels in heaven are responding to what is in the heart of God. And when God sees us turn to Him and believe in Him, God rejoices. And when you give your life to Jesus and believe in Him, you feel and sense the laughter of heaven as well. Joy and peace. That's the influence of God pressing in upon our lives. When that happened, God pours His Spirit upon us in order to bring us life and vitality and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. This too is an influence that He presses upon us. And then beyond saving us, God has a desire by the Spirit to mold us into the image of His Son. God has a plan that we would grow and grow more into His image. He has a sanctifying work to do in our lives that can't be completed in us until we come to a point of complete and utter consecration in which we yield up our life to Him to fill us, to flood us, and to guide us into the future. Then God does. He pours out His Spirit upon us so that He touches the very nerves of our inner being and our soul. And in those moments, we weep and we rejoice at the influence of the outpoured expression of His movement upon us. Wanting us to bring us deeper and deeper into His life and to feel His power and to let Him work through us and mold us and shape us. Those times as well are the influences of God upon our lives. There are times when God still makes Himself known to us. I've had it happen to me. Not regularly, periodically. When God all of a sudden reveals that I've been wandering from Him and that I've been claiming my joy and my satisfaction and my hope and other things and material things or in my own reputation, what it is. And when God does it, it's usually such a stunning way that I'll find myself on my face on the ground, weeping and confessing. Again, God renews in those moments the sweet sense of His presence. He only shows me those things in order to sweep it out of the house, in order to remove these impediments in order to reinvigorate the nerve and the fiber of my inner being so that I might be all the more enjoying himself and entwined in his purposes and his goals and design for my life. That's grace. It's grace of intimacy and life that we step into when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And then God sends challenges and difficulties our way as well in order that we might more and more meaningfully incorporate and turn to Him to receive the power and the invigorating beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ living within us, so that we may respond by His nature and His way, instead of 
through the impulses of our flesh. And then God disciplines us when we're falling away. He disciplines us so that he might keep us in the place of blessing and so that we might be readily availing ourselves of all the graces he wants to bring into our life. This is God's influence upon us. This is God's influence upon us. Again, now these are illustrations might not work for some people. I don't know what kind of home you grew up in. But if you've grown up in a good home where your parents loved you and cared for you, you can trace expressions of these graces from their life. How they jealously guarded over your life. How they fed you and you feasted before them. By the way, you know when the Bible talks about the Christian life, when Jesus wants to give parables illustrating the Christian life, a parable they seem to go back to is the parable of a feast, right? Not just a feast, a wedding feast. And not just a wedding feast, but a royal wedding feast which we come and we enjoy this great sense of feast. The Christian life is meant to be a glad feast, not a sad fast. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly or to the full. Jesus prayed in John 17 that I pray these things that my joy might be in them. That's the Christian life. Look back in your own experience in your own home and see how your parents strategically planned out experiences just to give you benefit and blessing. You know, one of the things that would disappoint a parent is one of my children was planning to take their children this weekend to a park and they had bought tickets for it. They wrote the other day that they postponed it. They cashed the tickets in and they were going to buy it for another time because after they bought the tickets, the kids all got in fights with one another and it was like, yeah, I can't take them. And you know, I know what that's like. It's so disappointing when you're planning to take your children on some excursion that you know they're going to enjoy and love and it's going to be fun and you're going to give them great experiences and then they do something that you can't give it to them in that moment. They won't appreciate it. They won't value it. You have to withhold it from them. You've got to put them under some discipline in order that at the right time they might enter those things. That's the heart of God. He wants to bring you to all these blessings. How often we grieve the Spirit because our attitudes and hearts aren't right. And so he has to withhold the moment and we break certain blessings out upon us. You think back to your home life and you think about that. You plot through what a good parent did, providing for you and feeding you and giving you great experiences and protecting you and disciplining you and watching over you. And they were regulating whatever graces, and you didn't pay for any of it. It was all free. They were just doling out as they thought they could and as they would a grace upon your life. How much more, how much more the Father bringing the influences of His presence upon our lives. Then there's the grace experienced in this communion with God to talk with Him and walk with Him and to call Him into our day and to be called into His purposes. This grace can be seen in the prayer life He gives us. In our communion and prayer with Him where now when we come before God we can call Him our Father as we pray and make our needs known before Him. It's experienced even in the temptations we face when we feel like we're being overwhelmed by temptations and we're resisting and we're trying to stand up and in the moment of desperation we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, help me. And He's there with us, giving His grace to us. In the midst of trials and difficulties, when everything seems to be fleeting away from us, our life is being stripped of the things that we'd accumulated to ourselves when those who we thought we could stand by depart from us and leave us. The Bible tells of David on one occasion, which he's being chased by Saul, and he's being pushed out into other foreign countries with his soldiers. And on one occasion, as they're in this tight spot, 
marauders come from behind them and take all of the children and wives and lead them away with all of their goods and all their baggage, take them off and hold them captive. And now all the people, and even his own soldiers who have been on the run and are surrounded by enemies all around, turn against David as well. And the Bible says of David at that moment of time, he comforted himself in the Lord. He comforted himself in the Lord. Even in those moments of trial and difficulty, God is there to commune with and know, and this is a grace. And, and then God calls us to a work of making his salvation known to others. Jesus commands us to go unto all the world and preach the gospel, and that's our joy and our duty, but it's not a work that we do alone. God companions with us in that work. He invites us into his own redemptive plan for the nations and for other people. And then Jesus says, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's always with us. Or Paul goes on to say, we're ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we speak to men as though God were crying out through us, be reconciled to God. It's as if God so unites in the work of making the gospel known to others that he brings his own life into us and he puts his own voice into us. So that when we speak, it's as though he's speaking through us. One of the reasons I would coax you to be bold in evangelism is because there's an intimacy of communion with God you won't know, a grace that you pour it upon you you won't know until you reach those kinds of moments. All this is grace, abounding grace that comes to us and is poured out to us. Ephesians 3, 19 through 21, Paul prays that this grace that God has for us would just be cast over our lives that we would kind of grow in an, an expansive understanding and experience of the greatness of the graces that God pours out to us. Let me read to you Ephesians 3, verses 19 through 21. It says this. He prays that we would know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he says this, after ending his prayer, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ. And by the way, this is how Jesus Christ's glory is expressed in the church. It's when we come to a realization and experience of the greatness of his grace. To him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, it's quite a wonderful passage. It says that what I want you to know and what I want you to experience is to know a God who gives you everything that you ask. Now, let's draw that back. I want you to experience a God who gives you all that you ask. Let's go back a little further. He gives you above all that you ask. Not enough. Who gives you abundantly above all that you ask. Who gives you exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you ask. The grace that you stand in. The provision that's yours. That's what I'm praying for. Paul puts it in Romans 8.32 this way. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? That's the grace that you have access to. That's all around your life. That's why Paul can say just prior to that that we know that all things work together for good. To those who love God and are called according to His purpose. This is God's desire. This is God's design. This is where we stand. Now, third thing we see here. Not only have we now gained access into this grace and try naming some of it this week if you could. Some. 
let your mind go there as far as it can go and then ask God to let you live long enough to see further and deeper down that road and that path. But here's the next thing it says. It says we rejoice or boast in the hope of glory. Now this is what God holds out for us for the future. We rejoice or boast. And the word there for rejoice actually could say exult, but it's the, really uh, the idea of bragging. Of bragging. We brag or we make our boast in the hope of a glory that's ahead of us in the future. And we have to know that God is pointing us to a wonderful end, an eternity that will open up before us where all of these gracious blessings that we're experiencing in the presence will culminate in a climatic, unending glory. And that all these graces are attached to God's own being, His own presence. I think it's John Piper that said, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Himself. God is pouring out all of these things that are to satisfy us with Himself. And what we'll discover when we get to heaven is how completely attached they are. All these benefits to the goodness of God, to God's own nature, to the glory of all that God is. And heaven is going to be this place where God is going to enrich us and shower upon us the resplendency of His presence and His life. Heaven is not about streets of gold. It's not about pearly gates. Those things only tell us that heaven is going to be so great in comparison to all the riches that men pursue in this earth and this world today. All those things that they pursue now is just construction material for heaven. It's nothing to be compared with the glory that's waiting us. No, the real glory of heaven, the real wonder of heaven is God is there. It's to be home with God and God revealing His own glorious presence. Heaven is all about God's glory. It's the electric weight of Himself to be enjoyed and celebrated. I spoke about this before, but to me, glory is the impact that comes upon us when we're in the presence of something wonderful. So, you know, if you're in a room and someone that you look up to or respected or had a high view of came into that room in that moment and you were surprised by their presence, there will be a shock of wonder at their presence. You're in a room and all of a sudden some great dignitary came in the room that you respected or some boyhood idol that you had, some baseball player or football player that you looked up to and they came in the room, all of a sudden an excitement would stir up within you and that's in a sense their glory. Heaven is a place where God is going to shower over His people the electric glory, shock and wonder and joy of His own presence revealed before us. That's what we're talking about. This is the glory of God. It's the impact of His presence experienced and realized. If you read your Bible, you'll see that something of that glory is even expressing itself now. The Bible say that the heavens declare the glory of God. The angels who are worshiping God in His presence in Isaiah 6 said the whole earth is full of your glory. You'll step out and go out into some wonderful place. You'll be out looking over the mountains or over a meadow or wherever it is or staring at a little flower or a dandelion, right? doesn't matter what, a periwinkle, whatever you're looking at. At some point in time, something turns and checks in your mind and you're caught up with a sense of wonder and awe. That's just a little residue of the glory of God. It's over all of our creation right now. The angels know it. The angels see it. By the way, parents, a little advice for you. If you want to raise your children with a proper awareness of God's presence, teach them to see the wonder and glory of God in His creation. Let them look at it and study it and attribute it to where it belongs. Find out those moments when they're 
enjoying themselves and caught up in the wonder of the life that's around them and living that life and then point them and direct them that all that joy and all that wonder is poured out from heaven from a God who's a God of wonderful glory and goodness. And you will cultivate a God's awareness in the life of your children and your grandchildren. There's also the glory that was revealed when the Lord Jesus came to earth. John says of the Lord Jesus that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. And so the whole life of the Lord Jesus is an expression of the glorious reality of God tenderly coming in contact with and touching human life. And then the Lord Jesus, before he went to the cross, as he was facing the death that he was going to die for us and the resurrection that was before him, prayed, Father, glorify your Son. And Christ is glorified in his death for our sins and his resurrection. The reason we recount over and over again the story of our salvation is because it's a glorious story. It's a story of God revealing himself and making himself known. What happens then is there's coming a day, the Bible says, when the Lord Jesus is going to return. And the Lord Jesus describes it this way. He says he's going to return in the clouds with power and great glory. Actually, 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says that Jesus Christ will come to be glorified among his saints. That's what's happening. It's going to be an outburst or outbreak of glory that's coming upon all the earth. When that happens, those who are waiting for him, the Bible says, will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And at that moment, we'll be perfectly glorified with the perfected life of the Lord Jesus. 1 John 3.2 says that when Jesus returns, we'll be like him for we'll see him as he is. What is it? We're going to be transformed into his very glorious nature. That's what it is. That's what's going to happen to us. When Christ comes and reveals the splendor of his glory upon the earth, he's going to shed that glory upon us in such a way that Romans 8.17 says at that moment, we will be glorified together in him. Look at your life right now. Study yourself in the mirror from year to year. You're not being glorified. <laughs> the ravages of time are weighing in upon you, but there's coming a day when all the glorious, wonderful presence of the everlasting, ever-living God, the God who never ages, who's always young, who never tires, who can do the same thing over and over and over again and take equal delight in it every single day. Every day, he says he calls out the stars by name. Never gets tired of it. Delights it at all. The infusion of that kind of overpowering life that breaks away whatever becomes a monotony to you, become glorious expressions of the consistency and the grace and the goodness of God breaking in upon your life. Glory. Glory. Oh, that will be glory for me. Molding and shaping us into his presence. Romans 8, 21 says that this is described as the glorious liberty of the children of God. It actually says that all of creation is longing for that day of the glorious liberty of the children of God because all of creation is going to be renewed in that glory. There's going to be a new heavens and earth that is completely renewed in the glory of God. Right now, we live breathing in the atmosphere of a broken world, of a sinful world. We live and we live within that environment and our lungs, in a sense, are accustomed to it. Our very lives, we know how to live and we make our way through it. Ultimately, we wear away and we die, but we're still receiving and engaging in the atmosphere of a broken and fallen world, but we're saved for glory. We're going to be brought into glory. We're going to go into heaven and a new earth which is nothing but glory. And in that moment, God is going to drive out and expunge every point of disease and sickness 
Our lungs won't be able to accept it. We'll refuse it. With glorious bodies, we'll need a glorious environment. And that's what we'll get. A full expression. Everything will radiate with the good presence of God and we'll breathe it in throughout eternity. And that's our hope. And that's our longing. We're made for glory. Christ will bring us to a new heaven and earth where we'll be glorified in the glory of God. And our glory will coincide with the full unveiling and revealing of the fullness of God's glory upon His creation. It's God's glory that will be our glory. Now, let me ask you a question, believer. You who profess Christ as Savior, is this something that excites you? Is this a certain hope that stirs up a great longing in you and a desire? Is this a promise that you receive and you hold and it's not a false hope because it's a hope that you receive from a God who's able to raise the dead like Abraham believed. And it's a God who can speak nothing into existence. Does this capture you so that it's your boast, your brag, the exultant hope that's lying before your life? Is the exultant hope lying before your life that your investments will somehow come out for you so that you'll be able to retire and buy a nice big RV trailer, be able to live in a warmer climate or buy a home on the beach or whatever it is. I'm not saying that's all wrong, but is that what you're counting down? Is that how you're measuring your day? You know, like if you looked at it, our day is just this little span and you're at the very end of that span and you're just waiting for that time to come. And when that all comes, that's what you're looking forward to. And you're not even thinking about all the endless, all the endless glory beyond that. Where is your focus? What are you excited about? What are you living for? C.S. Lewis talks about hell. What he does is he points out that hell would be a place where people will get exactly what they wanted in life. They wanted, for the most part, a life without God. And in hell, they're going to get what they desire. And there's no indication, by the way, when they get in hell, that they're going to desire a change in that arrangement. It might not be a great place, but... That's what they wanted, that's what they'll remain wanting. They don't want God. They don't want God in their life. At the same time, we can understand as a result of that, heaven is a place where the Christian gets what he or she wanted in life. We want God. We want the things of God. We want a relationship with Him. We want life that comes from Him. In heaven, that's what we get. And that's what is promised to us. When you study heaven, all that's promised is God is at the center of it. God is the temple. Jesus is the light thereof. It's Him. It's His presence. It's His life. So the Christian can kind of reason in themselves, well, those individuals who go to hell, and sad as it is, they got what they wanted all along in life. And so in a sense, it suits, it's right, it's just for them. And, but here's the thing, just a little bit of a warning, that there's a little bit of an edge to this idea that might cut against our own selves. Because if heaven is a place where God's glory is completely unveiled and enjoyed, and that glory is something that we will personally experience throughout all eternity, and that God is even now preparing us for that glory by pouring out the glorious expressions of it in the graces that we have access to in this day and age. And this is the whole explanation of heaven itself. The whole explanation of heaven is simply this. God's glory. The experience of God's glory. And the question is, is that really what I want? If I look at my life and the life I'm living as a professed believer... Does my life demonstrate that what I want above everything else is the glory of God? Am I living for it? Is that my calculation in my decisions? Is that the point at which I confess my sin? Oh God, I didn't choose your glory. 
Wash and cleanse me. Let my life be about your glory alone, of all things that you would be glorified. Because if you're living in the comfort that you're a believer, but you don't know this experience, peace with God, the abounding awareness now of the outpoured goodness of God and grace from your Father, teaching you of His glorious ways so that you rejoice and you exult and you boast in the glory yet to come from those things. Maybe because you don't want it. You don't really want it. And maybe as a result, you won't get it because you get what you want in the end. You get what you want in the end. Now, here's the wonderful thing. When you give your life to the Lord Jesus and receive him as your Savior, he gives you your wants. He gives you your desires. Oh, your flesh still has cravings that lead you astray. But listen to what he's done to you. If you've given your life to him, listen to what he's done for you. Your heart cries out for the things of God. Your heart cries out for a life with him, at peace with him. Your life cries out for the goodness of the Lord. Your heart longs for His glory. His glory. Take comfort in what He's done for you. Let's bow our heads and pray. And so, we sing, Oh, that would be glory for me. And so, we long for you, O oh God, your companionship, your fellowship, your life. We love that our children in their young age love to play before our eyes, want to enjoy themselves with us looking upon them. Lord, ever keep us children before you, longing to exalt and play in the good things you give us, live out the light you've given us before your eyes, knowing it all comes from you. And we give you praise. And for those who don't see that, they're living for their own pleasures. They're living for their own satisfaction. They're calculating their day ahead on what will, in a sense, just please themselves alone. And that's the barometer of whether they had a good day or a bad day, whether they got what they wanted for themselves. Lord, I pray that you'd convict them of the need of a Savior who would rescue them from sin and become everything to them and can be by faith in Jesus Christ. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.